Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's well. Your day and week is off to a tremendous start as we settle into 2021 nicely. So let's put forth a podcast that'll whet your sports appetite and then some as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me for now 173 episodes, I welcome you guys back. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts if you haven't done so already, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, even Amazon Music, or you can go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about me, the podcast, archive shows, etc. It is a Monday, January the 11th, in the year of our Lord, 2021. Before I get to my J Reels What's the Deal segment, shout out to my Uncle Mark, who today is his 57th birthday, Johan Santana. John Smiley of the old pirate days way back in the 90s. Trying to think of other 57s in the world of sports off the top of my head. But nevertheless, my uncle was like a big brother to me. I want to wish him a very happy birthday and many, many more to him. So now on to my J Reels What's the Deal segment. Here's what to expect on this podcast. The national championship game finally arrives tonight down in Miami where the Alabama Crimson Tide look to get back and raise the trophy over their heads going up against the Ohio State Buckeyes. So we'll preview the game. We'll also get into Devontae Smith, who I have to owe a big apology. So you'll hear that later on. In the NBA, what's going on there? Well, COVID is starting to feel its impact and start to spread throughout the course of the league. We've had games now being postponed. Rosters are starting to thin out. What will the NBA do moving forward? It's a pretty simple explanation. If you've listened to this podcast over the last few months, you're going to know what the reason is. And not even just money, but they're just going to plow through these games. And I'll explain in greater detail later on. The big trade last week at Major League Baseball, Francisco Lindor is a Met. I know I discussed this last Thursday on my social media platforms, but I'll get into it a little bit more. Is he the final piece of the Mets puzzle? Will they be World Series contenders? You'll get my take and my answers on that later on. Also, the NHL begins this week, where the season starts on Wednesday. The puck will drop where the Tampa Bay Lightning will defend their title. We'll get my Stanley Cup final prediction. Also, what will happen throughout the course of the NHL for this 56-game stretch? College basketball, the bubble for March Madness, we'll talk about. Lots of stuff to get into, my hero and zero of the week. But now we've cut the playoff games almost in half as we started Saturday at 1 p.m. in Buffalo, the first of 13 NFL games to lead us into Super Bowl Sunday, really 12, and then Super Bowl Sunday on February 7th would be the 13th game. And now we've almost cut them in half. To the point where we can look forward to the divisional round and the final seven games with the four next Saturday and Sunday followed up by the two over the championship weekend two weeks from yesterday. And then of course, two weeks after that, we will have Super Bowl 55 in Tampa. 
But as we recap the wild card weekend, it wasn't really as wild as a lot of people hoped with the first time the foray into six playoff games to open up the postseason. The three wild card games, both Saturday and Sunday. And when we look at these games on a whole, only a third of these games were any good. And the other quarter were either wacky, dull, nothing to write home about. And you could only look at the two games that kicked off both days in the AFC, whether it was yesterday, Sunday, Baltimore, Tennessee, and then Saturday, where we'll begin in Indianapolis and Buffalo. You had the fans there, the Bills Mafia, representing there in the stadium for the first time all year. Everybody pumped up in Western New York. A lot of hype, a lot of buzz with the Bills and everything that they've done toward the end of the season to now steamroll into the playoffs. And overall, I thought that that was the best game of the weekend, followed by the Baltimore-Tennessee game. And when you look at this game on a whole, if you're an Indianapolis Colt fan or even a Phillip Rivers fan, it just leaves you wanting for more because the Colts, as good of a season as they had, for them to fall short is only typical of how the Colts pretty much played here down the stretch. Whether it was the game in Pittsburgh where they had the big lead and then squandered it to lose. Now, they did right the ship by winning against Jacksonville and then making it into the postseason, but they had a lot of these games where it left you wanting more. And when we look at how this game took shape, the Colts actually played as good of a first half as you could ask for. Not only with the elements, it wasn't really cold and windy and snowy up in Buffalo, but and even with fans in the building, but for them to run the football, Phillip Rivers to have the production that he had throughout the course of the game, he did end up with over 275 yards passing, didn't throw any interceptions, and Jonathan Taylor was steady on the ground, but when you look at the way this game turned, at 10-7, first and goal, they're late in the first half, by them not punching it in, and I could see why they went for it there, it was late in the quarter, they wanted to get to be up two scores. Kicking the field goal was the safe route, and you could debate whether or not Frank Wright should have kicked the field goal. Me, on first take, because they were able to move the ball, it was very aggressive. And yes, there was a part of me that thought, why not? But right before they got to the line of scrimmage and snapped the ball, I said they probably should have kicked the field goal. And as it turned out, when you look at the rest of the game, they would have gone into overtime. But you can't look at the game that way. You can't look at it. From the standpoint of, oh, if they would have kicked a field goal there, it would have been tied. Or even later on when Rodrigo Blankenship missed the field goal there in the third quarter. Oh, they could have won the game. You can't look at the game in that context because so many things happen between, obviously, the fourth down miss there at the goal line and the rest of the game. And we'll go through it. But that was a point that pretty much turned the game around because then the Bills were able to get their sea legs. Josh Allen made a couple of big throws to Gabriel Davis. One tiptoe in the sideline on the right sideline there in the beginning of the drive. And then later on on the left sideline where great catches by Davis. What could you say? And they were monumental because what that led to was a touchdown run by Josh Allen to make it 14-10 right before the half. And I'm sure if you're a Colt fan, you looked at that as pretty much the, I'm not going to say backbreaker, But that's one series that you'd like to have back. And if you kick the field goal there, I get that you're still giving Josh Allen a lot of time. And even when they were stopped there at the goal line, they had to go the length of the field. But as you see what happens, and especially in situations like that, not to say the defense will be indicted, and rightfully so. You look at those two plays with Davis, and they were great. But indicted from the standpoint of 
them being deflated, them having to go back on the field, the offense didn't do its job, and then now they got to stop them. And let's face it, they were on their heels that whole drive to the point where they're able to score the touchdown and they took the lead. And at that point, they never looked back. And let's not forget on that drive where they had a fourth and three, the defensive lineman for the Colts, Kamoko Ture, was offsides. So that automatically gave the Bills a first down, which led to the touchdown. So who knows what would have happened on that play? We get that the Bills were driving. Chances are they may have gotten it. But again, you never know. Fourth and three, anything could happen. Fumble, they get stuffed on a run, incomplete pass. We understand that that's how the game unfolds sometimes. But that offsides was crucial because it led to that touchdown. It was a big play. So now as you get to the second half and the Colts were able to extend their lead, they made it 17-10 by kicking the field goal. And then also the tag on the touchdown to make it 24-10. And then you think to yourself, all right, now the Colts got to get to work and let's see what happens. But as the Colts have done pretty much the whole year, and they've had their big wins throughout the course of the year, the first game against Tennessee on that Thursday night, the game against Green Bay, and they had to come back big in that game. And here they are. They had to mount this comeback to where they cut it to 24-16. And then the stupid analytics kicked in because Frank Reich at 24-16, what does he do? Instead of going for the extra point, he decides to go for two. They didn't make it. And even though they made it later on, which I'll get to in a second, but why chase points if you don't have to? They kick the extra point there, it's 24-17, you're good to go. We understand that if they convert there on a two-point and have a chance to not only take the lead the next time they get the ball, provided that they stop the Bills to then go ahead and get the touchdown with the extra point, but it's still highly risky to do that. And you know... A lot of the defenses that are lined up for these two-point conversions, they know damn well that if they stop them here, they're going to have to get another two-point later on. So it almost, to me, despite the analytics, when the offense is still out there ready to try to convert that two-point conversion, I think that jacks up the Bills' defense to say, all right, well, we know if we stop them here, then they have to get another one later on, and which they did. And give credit to the Colts for marching back down the field. That big throw there to the... Back of the end zone there where Jack Doyle had a lot of big catches there. And they spread the ball around a lot. Michael Pittman. We know about T.Y. Hilton. He didn't really have that big of a game. Trey Burton. Rivers was phenomenal in this game. And to the point where, as an offense, they had 450 yards and no turnovers. And they're the first team to lose that type of game in the Super Bowl era. So could you imagine? So then now, they get the touchdown. They get the two-point conversion. So now it's 27 24 because mind you the Bills had kicked the field goal after it was 24-16 the Bills marched down kicked the field goal 27-16 and then obviously the comeback came so now the Colts get the ball no timeouts above the two minute warning and they convert a couple of big fourth downs especially the second one where Zach Paschal makes the catch sliding catch as he gets up the ball is stripped from him Recovered by Buffalo, and as they look at the review, which seemed like it took an hour and a half, it was inconclusive on whether or not Pascal's knee was off the ground to the tune where that should have been a fumble recovery. That was a bad call. I don't know what they saw there. I know it's very close, and I'm sure they have angles that are seen that we don't see at home. Not a good call by the refs. We get sometimes, it's almost as if, what? What are you looking at? But the Colts still have life. But on that ensuing drive after they got across midfield they weren't able to do anything they couldn't gain an inch the Hail Mary at the end falls short 
And the Bills live to see another day, their first playoff victory in 25 years. Everybody's celebrating up in Orchard Park in the Buffalo region. And the Bills move on and the Colts go home. All there is to it. And then the other two games on Saturday, the Rams and Seahawks, when you look at John Wolford, a guy that Sean McVay, the coach of the Rams, had a lot of confidence in, going based on the game prior to versus the Arizona Cardinals to end their season and end the Cardinals' hopes of making it to the postseason. So, Wolford, after two series, gets knocked out of the game by Jamal Adams with a neck injury. So, he has to bring in Jared Goff. Goff, as we all know, had the thumb injury that he suffered against Seattle two weeks prior. Had surgery on it. A lot of talk and whispers over the past week about whether or not McVay's confidence has waned in Goff. Therefore, he started Wolford. And Goff... Let's cut to the chase. He was awful in the game. But I will say this. He was gutty. He did make a couple of plays that he had to make. Cam Akers was the MVP of the game by far and their defense. Because without Akers getting, what was it, 180 yards from scrimmage, he had Russ for over 125 yards in the game. And he had that big pass that went up the sideline there from Jared Goff. And as I said, Goff did nothing. But of course, those couple of plays that, the touchdown later on in the fourth quarter to pretty much seal the game at 30-13. to And their defense, even without Aaron Donald. And Donald, as we all know, that's a guy who is by far the best defensive player in the league. And he cannot, meaning the Rams, they cannot have Donald out of the lineup, especially now that they have to go to Green Bay. But give credit to the Ram defense. It's easy to pound Seattle right now because Russell Wilson did absolutely squat in the game. I get that he had the one busted play where he did find DK Metcalf there to make it 13-10 after he threw that pick, which give the credit to Darius Williams for making that interception because he just jumped around. He spotted that a mile away and was able to make it a pick six, which was the biggest play of the game because to me, I think without that, who knows if the Rams being out in front, even though the Seahawks did cut it to three, but it pretty much at least kept the game at bay. Goff didn't have to do too much. The defense did more than what they were expected of. And they went on to cruise to a 30-20 to victory. And yes, I could kill Russell Wilson and their offense and Pete Carroll and some of the coaching decisions. And Listen, the Seahawks, just like the Steelers, and you know I'll get to them in a little while, they just fell apart here the second half of the season. They did not play well. Remember, the Seahawks were putting up numbers in the first five, six weeks of the season. Remember, they started 5-0. and And Russell Wilson was by far going to be the MVP of the league. And this is why you can't get wrapped up in these MVP discussions. Because even at around week 11-12, when his MVP candidacy started to fall apart, I said, well, just give it to Patrick Mahomes because he was having that type of season. But now everybody thinks Aaron Rodgers is going to win the MVP. So it doesn't matter if it's week 4, 5, 10, 12. And I'm not really wrapped up in the whole MVP discussion as others. I bring it up because it is a topic of discussion. But I'm not going to have this MVP tracker week after week to see who does what. I mean, it's just a waste of time. Because five years from now, if somebody's going to ask you who was the MVP of the 2020 season, you're going to have a blank face. So as I ask you now, in the 2015 season, who was the MVP of the league? You have to think a couple of minutes or you may have to Google it. Well, right now I can tell you it's Cam Newton. And just because you're an MVP of the league doesn't mean you're automatically going to win a Super Bowl as you could ask a lot of these quarterbacks over the years. Matt Ryan, Lamar Jackson, even Tom Brady. So when you look at the Seahawks here, just fell apart here down the stretch. 
And I get that they were not the same offensive juggernaut they were the first five, six weeks of the season, but that's going to be a tough one for them to swallow at home against a division rival that they beat two weeks before to win a division. So there was my, the second game of Saturday. And then the third game, and I hate to say this, I give Tampa credit, they won the game, but it was a no-win proposition for them because if they would have lost that game, they would have been a laughingstock of the league. Because to lose to Taylor Heineke, and to me, he was the story of the game, if not the weekend, in a loss. Because nobody's going to remember the Washington football team and what they did, understood, but for the performance that he put out, 26 for 44, 303 yards, whatever how many yards he threw, I knew it was over 300, and for him to make plays, he reminded me of Doug Flutie. Now, I know he's tall than Flutie. I believe he's 6'1". And Flutie, as we all know, he was a diminutive. He was 5'7". But for him to keep his team in the game, for him to show a lot of guts, for him to be elusive, for him to make some good throws, and nobody in a million years saw that coming. And it actually made for a watchable game. Because for everything that Alex Smith has done in his comeback, and God bless him, and I finally got to sit down and watch that Project 11, which is tough to watch. But Alex Smith gets more than a thousand percent credit in my book. But you have to understand something. Alex Smith is as mobile as a tortoise. And he wouldn't have made a third of the plays or even probably a tenth of the plays that Tyler Haneke made. And I'm not trying to make Haneke out to be the next best thing or he's going to be this up and coming quarterback. But what he did there Saturday night. And the other thing is too, I'm sure the Buccaneers didn't have tape on this guy because he hasn't played that much. He was in the XFL, didn't even get to start on the St. Louis team when the XFL had their five games. So when you don't have tape on a guy, sometimes it's tough to gauge on what he's going to be able to do as far as his strengths, weaknesses, etc. So let's just say if they won that game and they would have played in New Orleans, because as it turned out with the Rams winning, they would have been the lower seed going to Green Bay anyway. So they would have gone to New Orleans and Sean Payton could just look at that tape to find out well, the strengths and the weaknesses of Taylor Haneke, and I bet you that it would have been a much different game if Washington would have moved on to round two. And the Buccaneers did what they had to do. They were in front. They weren't in danger of losing this game. I get it at 18-16 when they were going for two, and they squandered that. A lot of people thought, hey, can the Washington football team somehow, some way pull this upset? And even at 21-16, and I get they were hanging around the game, and that's the most dangerous thing to have is an underdog hang around in a football game but they weren't able to get over the top or weren't able to at least get close enough or even take the lead for Tampa to even play tight or to be worried and Tampa did not play well on offense even though they put up 31 points Chris Godwin had a million drops they weren't really that crisp that efficient now of course they made big plays Cameron Braid had a big first down we know what Mike Evans has done Antonio Brown had a touchdown early and they have weapons. Gronkowski, he's just window dressing. Uh, to me, he's a decoy at this stage. And understandably so. I mean, he's a relic as far as what he's done in his career. And he's not the same guys we've known. But the Buccaneers did what they had to do. And they won a game where I want to say is a little bit ho-hum. It wasn't really exciting. wasn't really anything to jump up and down and go crazy about. But if you're a Buccaneer fan, you got your first win in a zillion years. And that's kind of the theme when you look at the weekend. Buccaneers hadn't won in, what, 15 years in the postseason? They showed the highlight there against the Washington Redskins at the time. Back in, what was that, 2004? Then you also had the Bills win their game. And that was a move to Sunday 
Lamar Jackson, I know that was the talk about him not being able to get his first playoff win under his belt. And it didn't look good from the start. 10-0 lead. Lamar Jackson has that terrible pass that was picked off. That led to a field goal. And you think to yourself, if the Ravens, who have never won trailing by 10 points in the Lamar Jackson era, and it's only been about two plus years, it was a little bit ominous. But they stood to their game. The electricity of a one Lamar Jackson, what can you say? The touchdown run, I know it was unbelievable. It was electric. But he is that type of player. And I know that I've been one of his biggest critics because I think a lot of people, I'm not going to say they overrate him, but they overhype him from this regard. I want to see him make more plays in the pocket to win games. Because he could do that with his legs, without question. And he is a threat anywhere on that football field, as we've seen not only just in the game yesterday, but also throughout his career here starting for the Ravens but at the same time I need to see this in a big spot where he has to make that big pass that it's third and eight the pockets may collapse but he has no room to run and for him to make that throw and not just make it once in a while I need to see that consistently and until I see that from Lamar Jackson then I'm going to say well forget about it now he's really unstoppable but going back to the game yesterday they were able to do just enough He didn't really do much with his arm after that pick. Yeah, he settled down. He made some throws. But the passing numbers aren't anything to write home about. 17 for 29. I believe he had 173 yards. He did have the interception. Didn't throw a touchdown. But he won the game with his legs. And that's all you ask for. If he wins the game, no matter what, whether it's in the pocket, whether it's by running the football, if he does that, and they rush for over 230 yards on the ground, the team on the ground is a juggernaut. They are tough to stop. That if you hold them to under 150 yards, you're probably going to win the game. I mean, think about this. They rushed for over 400 yards against the Bengals the week before. Now, I understand you're going to say, oh, Reels, come on. It's the Bengals. Can't get crazy about it. But it's still 404 yards against an NFL defense. And yesterday, the defense for the Ravens, they had all the answers to stop Derrick Henry. And Henry did not get on track at any point. You saw his frustration drawing with Coach Mike Vrabel on the sideline there late in the second half. And Ryan Tannehill, give him credit. He's done well here with his transition from Miami to the Tennessee Titans. But he did not have a good game other than the first drive. Or really the second drive because the first drive they went three and out. Was not impressive. And then that pick there at the end where you see Marcus Peters. I get that the wide receiver slipped. Why was he going to the kid Batson as opposed to maybe A.J. Brown or somebody else other than Bats him because Corey Davis, who looked like he was hampered with an injury on the sideline, did not come back onto the playing field. But after that, Peters gets the pick. Then the whole team or the whole defense runs to the logo. They stomp on it. And that goes back to what happened in the regular season where all the Titans' pregame were standing on there. And you had John Harbaugh and Mike Vrabel have some words there at the end in the postgame handshake. And I know Peters and a lot of the players on the Ravens said that it was about unity it wasn't about disrespect but let's come on let's call it as we see it that was payback and listen they had a right was it classless yes but you know what I understand that's the code they're gonna step on your logo boom well guess what in a big time they finally slayed that dragon where they lost him in the postseason last year and that game earlier this year in Baltimore well that was payback And even Lamar Jackson running off, he did the interview with Lisa Salters at the end, but did not shake any hands afterwards, which I know a lot of people could look at that as classless too, unsportsmanlike, etc. And yes, is that the case? It is. 
But to use an old hockey reference from my goalie from the New York Islanders back in the 80s, and we all know about the handshake after a post-game victory when a series is over, Billy Smith never shook the hand of the opponent. Never. He felt as if, hey, we beat you guys. Why do we have to shake hands? And he did that, Lamar Jackson, and you know what? Kudos to him. I didn't have a problem with it. I understand it doesn't look good. It's not a good optic, whatever. But he finally got his first playoff victory under his belt. It was an emotional land. He got that first down there to run out the clock. And he was pumped up and amped. And he just thought, the hell with them. So they may face each other next year. I'd have to think about what the schedule would be like. Off the top of my head, I don't believe, no, they're not going to play each other next year because the Titans won a division and they'll play Pittsburgh considering they just played the NFC South, the AFC North, that is. So you won't see Baltimore and Tennessee play unless they meet in the postseason next year. And then your middle game, Chicago-New Orleans, this was a game that I didn't really pay much attention to because I had to run an errand and I just thought that New Orleans was going to blow them out. But it was a surprise to think that late in the third quarter as I got home, it was 7-3. to And even though the Saints were knocking on the doorstep at that time, I said, well, they're going to punch it in. And they certainly did. Just seconds later, the minute after I walked in. But for the Bears, here's where the game turned around. The Saints were up 7-0. And the Bears, with a trick play, had a chance to tie it. And it goes right through the arms of Javon Wims that would have tied the game. Now, mind you, this is the same guy that sucker punched Chauncey Gardner-Johnson in the November 1st matchup at Soldier Field that got him suspended for two games. I mean, it was just a classless move. And if you watch the highlight, you look at that, and it was just terrible how he just walked up to him and just smacked him twice, which I believe he got suspended for two games. So when you look at that drop, which led to nothing, and then they had the fumble by Taysom Hill, which had them pretty much deep in Bears territory, a chance to go ahead and tie the game. They ended up kicking a field goal. And I don't know what the fascination is with Sean Payton using Taysom Hill the way he does. He had him drop back to pass, and the ball was stripped. He was sacked. The ball went up in the air. was recovered by Chicago. I get in short yardage plays, you're going to bring him in. All right, understandable. That's how Sean Payton and his offense is going to work. Great. But why are you going to put him in there on second and longs or first? And... It doesn't make any sense. And I'm sure that irritates Drew Brees to no end. Because it's almost as if it's like Drew Brees, we know, is the starting quarterback. But Taysom Hill's a 1A. And I get that Sean Payton is... Masterful of what he does, he's crafty, he's an offensive mind, a genius, etc. We get all that, but Taysom Hill? Uh, listen, I, I don't know. I, to me, I think it's just a little bit too much with that right now. But then the Saints put the game away with two long drives in the second half. The first one being 7 minutes and 29 seconds. That was, like I said, the time that I got in where Latavius Murray had the touchdown to put the game at 14-3. to And then later on, the almost nine-minute drive where Alvin Kamara just salted the game to make it 21-3. And that's pretty much a game. That's all you need to know. They had an opportunity there, the Bears, twice. The drop pass by Wims in the end zone would have tied the game. And then having the ball there, which it would have been 7-7. Now, they would have kicked the field goal 10-7. Would they have won the game? Probably not. But it would have been a different outlook and possibly just a different demeanor for the Saints there. Maybe they would press a little bit. A little bit tight also in the process, but that wasn't the case. And what could you say? The Bears, 8-8, eight and eight, meekly crawled and backed into the postseason and certainly found their way and now meekly crawled their way out of the postseason. So the Bears, we don't have to see Mr. Zabisky anymore. We don't have to see that 
Offense, now give credit to the Bears defense. They were well, they were stout, but again, the Bears, and I don't want to hear the numbers six and three with Trubisky during this final stretch here. With you know, they beat Jacksonville, they beat they beat terrible teams. So I'm not gonna get crazy about that. And one last thing about this game before I get to Cleveland and Pittsburgh. I know this game was also on Amazon Prime, and they also had this on Nickelodeon. I don't know if it was streamed, I guess it was on their network. Now, as I said, I did not watch the broadcast. I knew it was on those other platforms. Nickelodeon was a little puzzling when I first heard about it. Now, this was last week when they show the matchups and they tell you what network it's going to be aired on and you see CBS, Nickelodeon, Amazon Prime. So the one thing I thought of was, what's going to be next with the NFL? They're going to have games on QVC? Food Network? Animal Planet? I mean, this is a disgrace. The NFL prints money... They certainly don't need any other network. And I understand maybe they're trying to appeal to the younger audience. That's why they're having this almost kiddie-like. They had Nate Burleson. I don't know who the other broadcasters were. Maybe it's a more of a football introduction one-on-one to the younger fan. But does the NFL need to do that? Do they really need to stream themselves or put their games on a broadcast network just to bring more fans? The NFL is bulletproof to begin with. The NFL doesn't need the five or six-year-old or even the 8 or 9, 10 year old to watch these games. Half of these kids are already into the fantasy aspect. Now I understand the fantasy season is over because we're into the postseason. But if they're going to watch for 17 weeks, why would they stop watching in the postseason? To me, it doesn't make any sense. So that's why I said, what's going to be next? VH1's going to have games? Uh, just think of the most dumbest networks. Like I said, QVC's going to have it, Bloomberg TV. Uh, it's just a disgrace with the NFL. I'm tired of it. More money grabs by the league and and they're printing money left and right. Uh, I, just, I just had enough with... Uh, I don't know what to say. It's just disgusting from that regard. So that's what we got there. And then the final game. And this is going to be two-pronged people. Everybody knows I'm a huge Steeler fan. So there's a lot to unpack here. Not only just with this game, but also with this organization. And because... And I'm not going to brag. Oh, it's my podcast. I can say what I want. This is going to be the last time we talk about the Steelers for a while, so let me just vent, let me just air it out. If I have a few expletives that are going to be blurted here, my apologies ahead of time, so you may want to proceed with caution if you're in the car with kids, or if you have it on one of your speakers there, and there may be the kiddies around, or your significant other, whatever it may be. Not that I'm going to go crazy, we'll see, but I'm just warning you ahead of time that this could get ugly as far as what it is I have to say. So with the game... The first play reminded me of Super Bowl 48, Seattle and Denver, where Marquise Pouncey just sails the ball over Ben Roethlisberger's head. Now, I understand people are going to laugh at Roethlisberger. Look, he didn't even go for the ball, die for the ball. James Conner was there. Conner, of course, made the attempt. Ben, at 38 years of age, he is not going to dive after that ball. And I'm not making excuses for him. I'm not. But with his age, and all it takes for one of those 300-pound linemen to just hit him right in the back, and then the game would really be over, as it was... We found out just about 10 minutes after that, the game was pretty much over at that point. But I wasn't expecting Roethlisberger to get there. Now, if Roethlisberger was by himself and Connor wasn't around and there were no other Steelers around and he made a feeble and futile attempt, then I could say, Ben, come on. You either got to knock that ball to the back of the end zone for safety or, or do whatever. But because he had Connor there, he wasn't going to be the guy to jump on that ball or pound on it considering that he had four or five linemen coming at him at a feverish pace. So I can't knock Ben on that. I'm sorry. But if you're James Conner, he overran the ball. 
we understand how the football bounces. To me, the best thing that they would have done, and granted that they would have given the Browns the ball back if there was a safety, that was the best thing. Because when that ball went over his head and it was going to the goal line, I said slap it out of bounds or slap it into the end zone. Because they would have recovered it from the one-inch line. They probably wouldn't have made it two feet. And with the way the game went, he probably would have been a turnover for a touchdown a play or two later. So that's number one. Then the rest of the quarter, Ben throws that terrible pick over Benny Snell's head. He felt the pressure. Gets picked off there. Next thing you know, Jarvis Landry's in the end zone. Then the Steelers, three and out. Kareem Hunt in the end zone, 21-0. Then you had the other pick where Deontay Johnson, the ball, looked like it was there, but Johnson wasn't ready for it. It went through his hands, picked off. Next thing you know, Kareem Hunt's in the end zone. 28 points in the first quarter, most by a road playoff team in the history of the league. 35 points the most in the history of the league. And even at 28-0, I still had hope. I have a three and a half hour Facebook video that it's on my timeline. And I get you're not going to sit through three and a half hours, but it just goes to show you, and if you, for whatever reason, if you're bored out of your skull, you want something to watch, go ahead and watch it. But I stuck through it A to Z, and I thought that they were going to make a comeback. The game was way too early to just turn it off and think that it was over. And I mean that. Now, here's where the biggest play of the game was. And it goes under the radar because a lot of people are going to look at the fourth and one in the fourth quarter. Tomlin punting, and I'll get to that in a second. But one of the biggest plays of the game that goes unnoticed. At 28-7, I believe it was definitely right before the half, but it was a third and six near midfield. And Baker Mayfield, who was not touched the whole night, was under pressure. He goes to the left sideline. It looks like the Steelers were going to stop him, but he lunged for the first down. He was able to get it there. And then a few plays later, they were in the end zone, 35-7. And that was pretty much the beginning of the end. Because how I looked at it was that if they stopped them there, and let's say the Steelers kicked a field goal there. And remember, the Browns didn't score any points. And we understand, you can't look at the game from 30,000 feet afterwards. Because the game could be played differently. But let's just say, if it was 28-10... And even with the Browns getting the ball to start the second half, it's a different outlook. Because if Pittsburgh does get that score and makes it 28-17, it could be a whole different ballgame. And as it was, they cut it to 35-23. And let's get to that fourth quarter play. It was a fourth and one. They did have the momentum. The defense had made some stops. The Browns didn't have the short fields that they did in the first half. And to me, this was the first guess. I thought that it was right for them to punt. And I'll explain why. You're at the your own 40, I think it was a 44 or 45-yard line. If the Browns get a stop there, they have the short field to play with, and they'll go into the end zone, to me, within a few plays. Because that would be demoralizing, almost like I said for the Colts earlier, when the offense of the Colts weren't able to get that fourth and goal to make it 17-7. Now the defense has to go back out there a little bit with that cloud of, all right, now we got to go out there and stop them. Well, the Steelers defense would have had to do that and not only that, Chris Collinsworth early in the broadcast said that the Steelers have plenty of troubles in short yarded situations. And Lord knows, I've watched all these Steelers games and they've been brutal in short yarded situations. Brutal. And I thought that was one of the reasons why they punted because Tomlin probably didn't trust his offense to get that one yard. I get it, he had the momentum. I get that they scored the 13 points to lead up to that situation there, but... How I looked at it was, punt the ball, let them go the length of the field, their defense had played better, the Steelers that is, and then what happens? They punt the ball, the Browns go the length of the field, and that pretty much summed up your game. But I couldn't kill Tomlin for that. But I got a lot to kill Tomlin on, I'm going to get to him in a minute. And that was pretty much a game there, because at 42-23, there was just no way 
There was no way they were going to come back and win the game. And yeah, they made it interesting. And yeah, they had a couple of plays and they made it close. But to me, that 40-second point, once the Browns got to 35 at halftime, they couldn't score again. Maybe kick a field goal they could get away with. But they couldn't give up any more points. They had to play the game pretty much near perfect after that. And as we know, that didn't turn out to be the case. And then the one thing, for Collinsworth to say, at 45-29, when the interception was made by the uh, linebacker Takitaki, how he said that was the biggest play in Cleveland Browns history? Chris, are you paying attention? It was 45-29. I could see if it was a thing where the Steelers mounted this incredible comeback, and now they're within a field goal. Or let's say it's 38-36, and if the Steelers march down the field to kick the game-winning field goal, then I could see that probably being the biggest play in Cleveland Browns history. But the game was already over. And that interception led to a field goal, which made it 48-29. And he just overrated and overstated that moment. Jeez. Now, yes, did Cleveland exalt? Did the city go crazy? Did the city feel as if that was the final dagger throughout the course of this evening? Absolutely. But come on, Chris Collinsworth. Are you serious? Yeah, so... All right, now let's get to this team. We know what the season was. They started 11-0, and if you listen to this podcast throughout the course of this year, and you could check the receipts, I wasn't crazy about the 11-0 start. Did I like it? Was I enjoying it? Of course, I'm a fan. I'm not going to be stupid to think that, oh, geez, this isn't an 11-0 team. But I didn't pound my chest and think, oh, here we go, just punch our ticket to Tampa. We're going to the Super Bowl. We're going to steamroll, because I knew that there was another beast in the conference that played in Kansas City. And as we've seen over the weeks, they went from 11-0 to pretty much 12-5. And And I'll get to that in a second. But never once did I think that this team was going to compete for a Super Bowl. And I really mean that because their defense, I thought was good, but not great. Their offense had sputtered unlike we've ever seen. And the funny thing is, is that this team in the first half of the year, they had rushed for about 138 yards on average from, I think, weeks 1 to 8. And that's not including the Tennessee game where they had, I believe, 48 yards. The Raven game in Baltimore, they had 46. And then the Cowboy game, I think they had 44 yards. So even then, with those three bad games, they still averaged around 138 yards a game. Well, as we saw in the graphic, they were last in yards per carry and last in rush, uh, rushing yards per game at 84, I think it was. So that's why I didn't think this team was a Super Bowl contender. You know, this wasn't the 07 Pats, the way they started off, just mowing people down. So let me get that out there. That's number one. Number two, this team lost five of its final six games. You want to attribute that to the schedule and how it unfolded, where they should have played on Thanksgiving, but with all the COVID cases in Baltimore, they had to move that game 15 times before they actually played it on a Wednesday afternoon at 3.40 p.m. And then five days later, they lose to Washington at home. And then six days later, they have a Monday night game, or excuse me, a Sunday night game against Buffalo, in which they played decent for the first half and then fell apart in the second half. All right, no excuses, but the schedule is what it is. And three games in 12 days in an NFL season where they had their bye compromised week four as opposed to week seven. All right, those are facts. It's not excuses, people. Those are facts. But for them to not show up on a Monday night against Cincinnati, for them to not show up for two plus quarters against Indy in a game that they pulled out of their rear end, and then we saw the final game with Mason Rudolph that actually could have gone for a tie there, but they didn't, and they ended up losing that game, so the Browns make it to the postseason. And then to see what happened there last night. 
uh, just an abomination. Uh, uh, what could you say on many levels for this team to just fizzle the way they did and to pass as many times as they did? And to me, the stats last night for Roethlisberger doesn't mean a thing. I could care less about the 500 yards, the 47 completions, an NFL record. I believe also the attempts in a playoff game. I believe the completions are the most in both the regular season playoffs. But when you're down 28-0, what do you think? You're going to run the ball half the time? So to me, those stats are meaningless. So now, when you look at the way this team has performed down the stretch, I didn't think that they were going to go to the Super Bowl. And for the Steel fan out there that thought that was going to be the case, well, they're pissed off this morning just like I am. But I saw it coming, and maybe they didn't see it coming, or they had the black and gold colored sunglasses on. They were watching another team. So, that's all I can say about that. Let's start off with the team there. As far as the organization, they have a ton of free agents this offseason, highlighted by Bud Dupree, and who knows what's going to happen there. I don't think they're going to franchise him coming off of that injury. And if he goes elsewhere, he goes elsewhere. Because the Steelers need to re-sign a lot of players down the road, whether your name is TJ Watt, whether your name is Juju Smith-Schuster, and I'll get to him in a second, which I don't even know if they're going to re-sign right now. But they have a lot of free agents. They're going to have a lot of personnel changes this offseason and that it could also mean the quarterback and maybe the center and I'll touch on him in a second so Kevin Colbert and a lot of teams are now starting to infiltrate Pittsburgh where they're looking for their personnel whether your name is Omar Khan or Kevin Colbert as had been rumored here over the last couple of weeks Colbert maybe the Lions are interested in plucking him from Pittsburgh and then Khan in that controversy down in Houston which I'll touch on later on but now when you look at this team on a whole and now let me get to the quarterback and the center They're pretty much tied at the hip. Ben has said that he'll continue playing as long as his center plays. Now, they both have one year left on their contracts. You would think that they're going to honor him. And as a fan, and this is just me speaking, it's time for both of those guys to go. Let them play next year. I want them on the team. I love both of those guys. Of course, I love Ben. He's provided so many thrills over the years. And right, we can talk about his playoff record ever since Super Bowl 45. He was 10-2 and going into that game. And since then... He has been three and seven. Same for Tomlin. Tomlin was five and one to start his coaching career, and he's been three and seven ever since. But bring them back for one more year, but they need to start looking for their quarterback of the future this offseason. So if that means bringing in someone like, yes, I'm going to say it, Jameis Winston, or drafting somebody, because Mason Rudolph is not the answer. He's a good backup. I like him in the backup role. Is he a guy that's going to start 16 games and be effective? And I'm not trying to compare him to Ben Roethlisberger because you can't. Because those are big shoes to fill. But based on what I've seen, I like him. But I don't like him over the course of 16 games. So they got to bring in a starting quarterback here. Starting next year. And the organization needs to tell Ben that. To say, one more year. We want you back. But your heir apparent may be on the bench. And hopefully Marquise comes back too. And I don't think Ben is done. I think he has one more year left. And that may be a little bit of a stretch. But Ben has that gunslinger mentality. You saw it there yesterday. He made some awful throws. Some of them were in his fault. But at the same time, he provides you those thrills. And to me, he can still play on this level. Now let's get to the coach. Tomlin, his record is what his record is, as he said in the postgame. He's 3-7 and seven since Super Bowl 45. He's had bad losses to Denver with Tim Tebow. The game against Jacksonville at home in the divisional round. And then last night. And just to think, in the last two home playoff games that the Steelers have had, they have given up 93 points. To Jacksonville and Cleveland. Now, mind you, Cleveland, they just gave them all those points with all the turnovers early on, but still, they capitalized. So give Cleveland credit. Understood. But the way Tomlin did not have his team prepare for this, 
I understand he's not on the field executing these plays and making the throws and the tackles and the blocks, etc. But man, it made you wonder, what in the hell happened this past week? They had a full practice. They were able to get their team relatively healthy by resting their key players there in week 17. They went up against a Browns team that didn't have their quarterback because he had COVID. They didn't have their left guard in pro bowler Joel Batonio. They didn't, their backup to Joel Batonio came in the game where even he got knocked out of the game to where the third string and Baker Mayfield said in the post game, I had to introduce this guy literally in the locker room right before the game. On top of that, they had no practice on Wednesday and Thursday because of the COVID protocol. And then to add another slice on top of that, they had two of their players and their starters caught drag racing Tuesday morning. And which team wasn't prepared? The Steelers were. That's an indictment on Tomlin. And to me, this game reminded me so much of the Jacksonville game because they had to come back pretty much from the dead to win this game. And as we all know, they fell way short. And Tomlin, the only thing I'm going to say about this to the Steeler fan, as much as you want him out, and granted, I'm not in good favor with Tomlin right now. But who are you going to replace him with? Let me hear your replacement. Is it Doug Peterson? Because he, he may be fired in the next couple of days as he's going to meet with ownership this week. Is it going to be Adam Gaze? <laughs> yeah, right. Is it going to be some other retread that we don't know about right now? I'm listening. I'm 51 years old. This team has had three coaches, head coaches, since I've been alive. What makes you think they're going to change right now? They're not going to do that. The Rooney's going to look at the job that Tomlin did. Yes, it ended terribly. But he did win 12 games. And that's on the heels of 8-8 eight and eight last year in which he had no quarterback. And granted, he was 8-5 and five and could have made the postseason, but they didn't. But when you have Devlin Hodges as a quarterback, they might as well have me a quarterback. But Tomlin, as much as I'm infuriated by him and as much as you could question his postseason coaching record right now, who are you going to replace him with? Eric Bieniemy is not going to walk through that door. You think they're going to fire Tomlin to bring in an offensive assistant? Or somebody from coach? Or some hotshot assistant? It's not in their DNA. They're not going to do that. So maybe 14 years? Is it time to make a change? Sometimes the message, the attitude kind of wears out on the players. But you haven't heard one player bark or one player gripe about Coach Tomlin throughout all this. And hopefully this offseason, Tomlin will really reflect on not only just what happened yesterday, but also the last six games of the season. Because this Steelers team right now, the window, if you want to call it that, for them to go or even make it to the Super Bowl, I'm not going to say it's closed, but it's about an inch away from closing. Because you have three quarterbacks in the division that look like they're going to be here to stay. Now, mind you, Joe Burrow, he has to rehab and get himself back on the field, but... He's just getting started. Where Baker Mayfield, and give credit, he had a good game yesterday. Had some bad throws, but he had a good game. And Lamar Jackson are going to be in this, this division for about a decade plus. Where's the Steeler quarterback going to be? So think about that. This is going to be the next year right here. Barring Roethlisberger retiring, or I, the Steelers aren't going to cut ties with Roethlisberger. He's owed too much money. He has so much money that's left on the cap and all that. They're, that, they're not going to go that route. So, and that's it. That, that's all I can say about this team. And it's just aggravating. It's just frustrating. It's just everything. Humiliating. They're just an inexplicable loss last night. Inexplicable as it gets. 
Look at that. And I went throughout that whole diatribe without cursing. Oh, it just, oh, man. All right, let me get to a couple of things here. Uh, of course, next week, let's touch on this real quick. We'll go through all the games in order. Rams at Green Bay. If Aaron Donald's not going to play, it could be a long night for the Rams. Now, we understand Jalen Ramsey against Devontae Adams is going to be a fascinating matchup right there. Who knows what the weather's going to be like. It's the 4.30 game. Green Bay, this is, as I said last week, in my storylines of the postseason, there's no excuse for Green Bay to not make it to the Super Bowl this year. If they don't, it will be an absolute disgrace. Because they were 15-1 to that one year, and they lost to the Giants at home, and that was inexplicable. And now they have another shot where they're going to play a six-seeded Ram team. And chances are, they're either going to go Saints or Bucks after that. And remember... They beat the Saints earlier this year in New Orleans and they lost to Tampa Bay down in Tampa. So Rams and Green Bay, I think it's going to be fascinating. I don't know what their offense is going to do. Now Cam Akers is going to have to pull a carbon copy of what he did against Seattle. And Seattle's defense isn't nothing to scream at. And same for Green Bay's for that matter. But in order for Goff, and I would think Wolford, he's not going to be active or even play in this game because of that injury. Now I don't even know how severe it is, but it is a neck injury. Goff, he's going to have to be much better than he was there Saturday night. And I gave it to him, Gutty, he got a win. It's a playoff win under his belt, despite him not playing well. But he's going to have to play a lot better in order for him to win, and especially with the way the elements will be in Green Bay there Saturday afternoon. But I'd say Green Bay wins. I'll say 27-17. The night game, and I'm sure the Buffalo Bills were rooting hard for Pittsburgh yesterday because what they did Sunday night, a month ago as they dismantled the Steelers there in that second half and then to know that Baltimore won their game and with Pittsburgh going home they're going to have to face this hot Raven team I tell you if it is going to be a windy Saturday night there where throwing the ball is going to be a challenge that plays right into the hands of the Baltimore Ravens because all they can do is just run the football up and down the field and I think that's what they're going to do I think they have gas in the tank and I'm going to say this I thought that it was going to be interesting for Baltimore to play Kansas City if Pittsburgh would have won this second round because now the momentum is on their side and they're due to beat Kansas City. But if they play a hard-fought, knockdown, 15-round heavyweight fight and win against Buffalo, I don't know how much they'll have left in the tank for the AFC Championship game if they do play Kansas City. I'm just putting that out there now so you can check the receipts later on if it falls that way. But Baltimore, I think they're a live dog in this fight. And I kind of hate to use it in that way. I use it more as live dog as an underdog. But I will say this. I think Buffalo's going to make plays, but I think Baltimore's going to make more plays. Cleveland's going to get whacked next week. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But Baltimore can win next week. And I do not want to see the Ravens win at all. But I don't think they can be stopped right now. I think they'll lose in the next round, especially if they play Kansas City. But here, I could see them winning the same type of game they won yesterday. Baltimore 20, Buffalo 17. The first game Sunday, Cleveland and Kansas City. Let's get right to it. And I was just texting with some people, especially my friend Brandon Pedroza. I call him BP. Very, very good friend of mine. Where he says, oh, you know, their running game, Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt, could possess the ball, time possession, 
Baker's made some plays, whatever. I said, no, absolutely. They, their offense is good. And if they're rolling the way they did last night, and mind you, they got a lot of short fields, so it's not as if they piled up 400, 500 yards on the ground. But here's the one thing that I can promise you. The Browns won't get this coming Sunday that they got yesterday. They're not getting five turnovers on the Kansas City Chiefs. You could underline that with a broad Sharpie, highlighter pens, spray paint, you name it. They are not getting five turnovers against Kansas City. And just that alone, and knowing that they didn't have any turnovers, I could see the tide turning here. Kansas City, they're going to be chomping at the bit. Can they get picked off here? They can. But I think they would get picked off more if it was against Baltimore because there's a history between those two teams. Cleveland doesn't have a history, and they can talk all they want. Nobody believed in us. Uh, we're going about our business. The Browns are the Browns. And I'm going to say this about the Browns. And Juju Smith-Schuster, which I didn't get to, and I'll say just for a quick second. The Browns, to me, will always be the Browns until they make it two and win a Super Bowl. Because until they finally get over that hump, they'll always be the Browns. And they're going to get whacked this week. KC 37, Browns 23. It's going to be too much Mahomes. The Brown defense is not great. I know Miles Garrett, he can wreck a game. Who knows what Denzel Ward and... And listen, nobody's going to confuse him with Deion Sanders. He's a good corner, but he's not great. Let's call it as we see it. But I could see this KC, and they know, defending their title. They're going to remember last year, down 24 nothing to Houston. I think that they're not going to try to play from behind. I'm not going to say they're going to come out and steamroll from the start. I could see them being touch and go from the start, and then they'll find their sea legs and go, but... And then the Juju Smith comment, to me, that was much to do about nothing. I looked at that as, okay, he called the Browns of the Browns. They're faceless, gray players, whatever it is. He didn't attack a particular player, or he didn't attack a coach, or their fans, or anything like that. He said the Browns are the Browns. Well, grammatically wrong, but the Browns are the Browns. He said the Browns is the Browns. That's all he said. And they can talk all they want. They won the game, rightfully so. I'm not going to lose sleep over it from that regard because, like I said, the Browns, they're not going to Super Bowl and they're going to get whacked in the next round. So after that, I'll have all the laughs and it's good because even if they do win next week, people could come at me. It's all good. I don't care. I know that's a fan of me talking, but at the same time, really, that's the one number you need to think about when you look at the game next week as far as Cleveland having this momentum, Cleveland having, oh, they put up 48 points on Pittsburgh. Okay, are they going to get five turnovers from Kansas City in the process? Because if that's the case, then it's a whole different game. And in the process, they're not going to give up any turnovers themselves. So. And then the last game is the matchup between Drew Brees and Tom Brady. Always tough to beat a team three times in one season, especially that last one where in Tampa, Sunday night, they beat them 38-3. I could see Tampa being in this game and I don't know why. The Saints yesterday were not impressive. And granted, Tampa Bay's defense is good. They're not great. I know they have some very good personnel on that team. You know, the Devin Whites of the world. Shaq Barrett. Jason Pierre-Paul. They got personnel. Now, their corners I'm not in love with. They're their safeties. But something just tells me Tom Brady wasn't a great game against Washington. Saint defense is good. It's in their building. I understand you. The whole track meet, that type of deal. If Tampa hangs around in this game, I can see them winning the game. And to me, the Bear offense is just terrible. So even though the Saint defense was good, but again, it is the Bear offense. I'm going to say Tampa squeaks by because that has to be one upset over the weekend, right? And to me, that would be an upset only because New Orleans had their number this year and Tampa 
a five seed. The matchups this week in both conferences, you have the one, two, five, and six seeds left. So just keep that in mind. I'm going to say Tampa 31, New Orleans 28. Third time is not easy. And we've seen it happen over the years. There's always a team that's going to beat him three times. But who knows? NFL, you never know. And even though I said Baltimore would be my upset, but I'm going to just pick Tampa. I got nothing. I'd rather see New Orleans win. Who cares about Tampa? But again, Brady Magic, they did not have a great game the first time around. And they have weapons and an offense that go up against them. It's, to me, the matchup is going to be the defense against the same offense. That's how I look at it. All right, a couple of quick notes before we move on to other things. I know I've talked uh, a lot about the football and Steelers, but NFL is going to be front and center here. Anthony Lynn out as coach for the LA Chargers. We'll see how that shakes down in the weeks to come with the quarterback and a high pick there. No surprise for Black Monday. Urban Myers assembling a staff as he meets with Jacksonville. So Shad Khan is ready to throw the house, the keys, the Corvette, the scooter, you name it, for Urban Meyer, who has never coached in the pros. And the one thing I would proceed with caution is the whole health issue. Because remember, he had to quit Ohio State because of the health. And the NFL is a different beast. It's not to say he can't coach it. We haven't seen him coach on a professional level, but... I don't know how many years they're going to give him, but buyer beware there, Shad Khan. I understand instant credibility with the number one pick to have Meyer there back in that region where he coached those Florida teams and now to be part of the NFL for the first time, to have the quarterback in tow, it's definitely storyline that's going to be sexy going into next year, but uh, we'll have to wait and see on that. And then the controversy in Houston with the Texans, and Deshaun Watson, who's a young player, he got the big bucks, the extension there, the four-year, $140 million deal where the ownership, I believe the CEO now, Cal McNair, is going to sit down with Deshaun Watson. But I believe that there were some talks and discussions at the end of the season last week where they were going to clue him in on who the next GM would be and therefore who the next coach would be. And I believe from what was reported that Deshaun Watson has, I don't know if he has a relationship, but he has a connection with the Steeler executive and Omar Khan. And I believe he may have addressed that to the ownership of the Texans. And then what did they do? Not only did they hire an outside firm in which they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars at what I've read, only for them to choose Nick Casario, one of the executives from New England. And that just left Deshaun Watson with his arms up, looking around saying, what the hell just happened? So now there needs to be a mea culpa or there needs to be some sort of reconnection or a mending of fences between the ownership and star quarterback because all you're going to hear, quite possibly, and I'm sure this offseason, is that now Deshaun Watson wants out of Houston. Which may sound good if you're the Jets or some of these other teams, even the Steelers for that matter. But are you going to pay $35 million for a quarterback? for the next four years, and then give up pretty much the cupboard of draft picks, not only this year, but next year. And as we know, the Texans do not have the number one pick this year. It goes to the Dolphins for the Laramie Tunsil deal. So right now, things are not looking well in Houston, but if you're going to get the Texans off the hook of that contract with Watson, he's a young player, and I'm, he's worth it. The guy has talent. The guy can win. you got to put a good team around him. But boy, you're going to have to give up your future, the mortgage, everything, 
just to get him on your team and pay him that much money. So that's what we have there with the football as we move on to the college circuit as tonight is the national championship game. Ohio State and Alabama. I'm praying that Ohio State wins. And to me, the only way they're going to win this game, and it's real simple. Can Justin Fields, the quarterback of Ohio State, match what he did against Clemson? If he does that, they'll be in the game. It's not even going to guarantee them a victory, but they'll be in the game. Also, can Trey Sermon move the chains, the running back of Ohio State, have the game that he had against Clemson, 31 for 191? If he could do that, they have a good shot to win, but it doesn't automatically guarantee them to win because what the defense is going to do for Ohio State against Alabama, that's the big question. I'm sure you're going to see the corner Sean Wade go up against Devontae Smith. And Devontae Smith is your Heisman Trophy winner. I'll get to him in a second. But to me, this is going to be Alabama. If Ohio State's in the game in the fourth quarter, I'll be shocked. Because I could see this being almost like the SEC championship game between Alabama and Florida, where Alabama will have the lead, Ohio State will answer back, then you'll have some instance where there may be a turnover or turnover on downs or they have to punt the ball then Alabama takes the lead and then although Ohio State will threaten but not enough to think that they're going to beat Alabama with that said Alabama 44 Ohio State 34 and I apologize to Devontae Smith and I've watched him this year and the guy is as electric of a football player and especially at that position, as you've seen in quite some time. He's better than Henry Ruggs. He's better than Jerry Judy. Jalen Waddell, the other receiver who may be eligible to play tonight, which will bring another dimension and another threat to the already stacked Alabama offense, is a guy that may be even better than Devontae Smith. But this guy, and not that I underestimated him, because I have followed him this year, and I've watched him, and he's performed on big stages, not only throughout his career, but this year, just yards, touchdowns, everything. But the reason why I apologize to him, because I thought the quarterback would win, and as we know, the, the quarterback is always usually the winner of these Heisman trophies, historically. Yeah, of course, you get the running back. You won't get a defensive player. Who was the last defensive player to win? Charles Woodson, I believe, off the top of my head. I should know this. But I know Charles Woodson did in the 97 college football season. But Devontae Smith... I get it that Mac Jones had the big year and you could say if it wasn't for the quarterback he wouldn't have that year but he was the best player in college football. And not that I thought that he didn't deserve it or Mac Jones was a slam dunk or even Kyle Trask or Trevor Lawrence or whomever else but I just thought Jones was going to win because he was the quarterback of the team and generally the quarterback gets the award. But Devontae Smith won it. He earned it and I'm sure he's going to shine bright tonight as they go for another national title there in Miami. All right, let's transition and pivot to the NBA where the news of the week is the confrontation between the league and COVID. And I know this is probably a tired narrative. We've heard this all before, but not in a regular season with the NBA. Yes, last regular season, remember, we know in Oklahoma City what happened there with the Utah Jazz and Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell, which was, to me, the first domino to drop in the sports world where then everything else shut down, whether it was March Madness, the NHL season, and even the baseball exhibition before they started their season in July. But right now you have this issue where it started last Thursday where Seth Curry of the Sixers had tested positive and then his close contacts 
became involved and you had to worry about other players on the team. So the Sixers, although they did not miss a game, but Doc Rivers griped about how they shouldn't have played the game on Saturday because they only had seven players. They had to bring a guy off the injured reserve list to just sit in uniform on the sideline, but they couldn't bring him in the game because he was still hurt. And although he was eligible to be suited up, but he couldn't really play because he would have risked injury with Embiid and a couple other players that were cleared from quarantine, but they were also nursing their own injuries, Ben Simmons included. To now, you had the Celtics and the Heat postponing their game yesterday because of COVID cases on the Celtics to where they would have started eight players listed six foot five or under. And then you had the Wizards and Bradley Beal because remember, the Celtics and Wizards played last week and Beal and Jason Tatum both come from the same area of East St. Louis, Illinois and they have a very deep and long connection and long bond. So who knows if something was transmitted during their post-game discussion. And now you just have, I'm not going to say a mess right now, but it's starting to turn out to be that way with how the league is just getting started. We're two weeks into the season, two and a half weeks, and you already have issues with players and rosters thinning out. And you have to think that, I don't even know if they've expanded rosters like they did with Major League Baseball, but the NBA has to do something. Because what's going to happen? They're going to have six players on a court, and you're going to have these guys playing 48 minutes a game? And you know the NBA is going to plow through this. There's no way they're going to stop the season. They're not going to say, well, you know what, let's get a timeout. If anything, they may use that week of the All-Star game, which I believe would have been the week of, I want to say March 6th, off the top of my head. That week off, they may have to put some games in there. Or they may have to schedule back-to-backs. They're going to have to do whatever it takes to get these games in. And you know they're going to do it. We've seen it in the NFL. We've seen it in baseball when the Cardinals missed literally 17 days and they played... Two games short of 60. The Marlins, remember they missed nine games? They're going to plow through it. They're not going to stop the season. And to me, that was the storyline of the week. When you look at some of these games, and uh, we could break down Kyrie Irving leaving for personal reasons early on. And again, this is personal reasons. We can't get on his case, whatever it is. So when he's back, he's back. Kevin Durant is back. There was also him feared being in close contact with COVID. And remember, he had COVID in the offseason. But you had the Clippers go through another collapse where they lost to the Warriors a few nights ago to the tune of up 85-63 with about three and a half minutes to go in the third quarter only to lose 115-105 to the tune where Kawhi Leonard had to answer, we've got to change. Well, don't you think? Obviously you had this issue in the postseason in the bubble and now here it is resurfacing against a Warrior team which is not going to be confused with the title teams of uh, three, four years ago. And then you had LaMelo Ball almost put up a triple-double against his brother on Friday night. And then in his next game against Atlanta, puts up a triple-double to where he's the youngest player in NBA history, for those who care about triple-doubles, against the Hawks, surpassing Markel Fultz, who did it a few years back as a member of the Sixers. And to me, triple-doubles are a little overrated because it's almost like padding your stats. And you wonder... When the word came down Saturday, well, the game was Friday night. Well, Friday night after the game when he almost had a triple-double, I bet you the first thing on the middle of Bulls' mind was, oh, the next game I'm going to get that triple-double. So, 
And that's what it is. When you're a young player, it's all about getting those stats, getting your numbers, making sure that you make all-star teams, whatever. And he's 19. You know, he's going to mature. He's going to grow into that. But that's how I look at it. So, yeah, it's a great accomplishment. But triple-doubles now, unlike it was in the 80s and into the 90s, they were harder to come by then, which made the stat even more note and newsworthy than it is today because of the way the game is played. Can't hand check. Chucking threes all over the lot. It's a whole different game. That's why you have all these guys getting triple doubles the way they did. Where Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, guys like that were just, you were in awe of those type of performances. Now it's like, hey, it's great, but okay. No biggie. And as far as college basketball real quick, March Madness will be hosted in Indianapolis as expected. I believe the Lucas Oil Stadium where the Colts play, that's where the Final Four was going to be. But now they're going to keep their hub in Indianapolis to where they're going to use six different arenas. Assembly Hall where the Indiana Hoosiers play. Also where the Butler Bulldogs play, they'll use their arena. I'm sure they're going to use a couple of other arenas or other schools, whether they be, who knows, they may even use high school gyms for all I know. Because I can't even tell you all the arenas there. Who knows where the Pacers, what their schedule is like. I'm sure if there is any availability, they may use that building to host a game or two. So the NCAA, and they have to do this because with all the other sports being able to play during this pandemic, the NCAA is going to do whatever it takes. Uh, If they Literally, if they play this in a high school gym, they're going to have to do it. So you can't fault them because it's all about the cash. It's all about the green. And to me, that's the big note that you heard from college basketball this this past week. Now as we're into January, as I said before, once we get past the NFL season, we'll get more into the college basketball. But that was the highlight to me of this past week where the NCAA made that decision to have the soft bubble, if you will, by hosting the whole tournament in Indiana. Obviously, they still have about two months to figure out the locales, the times, we know 68 teams. I'm sure they're going to be housed in whatever hotels. Indianapolis is going to be snatched up as far as rooms are concerned. And who knows if that's going to conflict with any conventions or any type of big gatherings that are going to take place. And of course, it's COVID. We, chances are there probably won't be any conventions in that magnitude with so many people. But they're going to do what it takes. And uh, they made a right step in having the whole tournament being played there in Indiana. Now, quickly, let me get to two other things. I'll get to the winter sport here in the NHL because the season starts on Wednesday where the Lightning will raise their banner to the Raptors. And I know that there were fans admitted to the arena where the Raptors were playing. I believe it was about 3,000, whatever it was. And I haven't watched the Raptor game, so I don't know, but that's what I've read. Well, now they're not having any fans into the building, even for the Lightning, for this opening game. There on Wednesday night, I believe it will be on NBCSN. So you have the Lightning going for their cup and an NHL season, which kind of just, I I don't want to say came out of nowhere, but as I try to handicap the NHL, which is kind of hard because with everything else that's going on, especially with the football and getting into the basketball and not really in hockey mode right now, although I tried to, piece together what it is I'm going to do for a Stanley Cup final and also as far as a preview goes. The three things that I take away before I get to that, the three things I take away this past week is the league announced sponsors to the division and the reason why they're doing that, people, and just for this year is because of money. 
And understandably so. There's no revenue coming in at the gate with these arenas. They're able to get these companies involved. Who knows what the dollar amount is, but I'm sure it's certainly going to help more than it's going to harm the league. So you have your Scotia North, your Honda West, your Discover Central, and your Mass Mutual East are your divisions in the NHL. So if you're wondering what the hell's going on as far as the companies, corporations now being a part of headlining these divisions as opposed to them maybe being on the jersey sponsors as you've seen in the NBA and to a certain degree Major League Baseball with the Nike logo well that's what it is and again it's all about money and in this case unlike the NFL having to put their games on Nickelodeon you could see why the NHL is doing this so that's number one number two is the Islanders extended Matthew Barzal three years 21 million dollars that was a no-brainer I'm sure they could have given him more money and maybe with the promise of down the road once the world starts to get back to close to being normal, maybe they'll offer him more money after that contract. So Barzal at least is in the mix here for the next three years as an Islander where Corey Crawford, the one-time Chicago Blackhawk who won two Stanley Cups in the mid-20-teens, retires as a New Jersey Devil, felt as if this was it for him at 35 years of age, I believe, did not play a game or even suit up for the Devils. So he decided right now just to step down and retire from the game. So the Devils will have to go elsewhere as far as their goaltending goes. And when we look at the NHL on a whole, now it's tough because you don't really get a sense, unless you're just a die-in-the-wool NHL fan, you don't really get a sense of what teams could be the sleeper team. And I could go through a lot of the teams that went through all these transitions. But I will say this, right off the top of my head, And you also have the stars. Let me throw this in the mix. You have the stars are going through their own COVID crisis as they're going to delay the start of their season. I believe they had six players and multiple clubhouse attendants come down with the coronavirus. So with that to deal with for the NHL, and we know how their schedule is going to be and the divisions, they're pretty much going to be located, whether it's in Canada, that's why that Scotia North is going to be all the Canadian teams and then the East is pretty much going to be that Northeastern corridor of Boston, Buffalo, the New York teams, New Jersey, Pittsburgh, Washington, and Philadelphia. So with COVID also to deal with and not really being in full NHL mode, my Stanley Cup final that I was going to pick, and I know it's going to sound crazy to a lot of people, I was going to pick the Stars only based on what they did last year. Now they fell short, as we know, in the Stanley Cup final. But based on just the information I gathered, These are the teams I was going to pick to go to the finals. Vegas winning in six over the New York Rangers. And the reason why I picked the Rangers is because now the new regime here with Alexis Lafreniere coming in to the team as the number one overall pick, put him together with the second overall pick from the year prior in Capococco. You also look at uh, Artemi Panarin, who is a huge offseason acquisition for the Rangers. And mind you, They were slow out of the gate last year. They did make it to the postseason and the back end when it came to the bubble and they got swept by the Panthers there. But something tells me with the goalie, now that Hendrik Lundqvist is not playing this year, but you have the goalie in Shesterkin and a lot of people are in love with him. And I know that the Rangers are going to be more of the trendy pick maybe for this year. And you probably think, oh, Jay Reels is jumping on the bandwagon because everybody knows I hate the Rangers. But with that said, I could just see them having a big year this year. In 56 games, it's pretty much a crapshoot. But with the way their team 
has been composed of and with Vegas still being solid and then keeping the goalie there, Robin Leonard, and for what they've done here over their first three years of their existence, making it to a Stanley Cup final and then a conference final last year in their first three years, I'm going to pick them to go back. I would have picked Dallas, but now with this COVID and all that, who knows? The East, I believe, is stronger than the West. I don't know too much about the West teams, to be honest, but can you trust Pittsburgh to go deep? Considering that their team is up there in age? Uh Uh-uh. Same for Washington. Them bringing in Zdeno Chara on a team that's already long in the tooth, although they have the championship pedigree. I know there could be some other teams there. Hey, how could you forget Tampa? I get that too. Tampa's going to be loaded. They're not going to have Nikita Kucherov for the regular season. So he may come back in the postseason, but I'm not going to pick Tampa again. You know, they're a finesse team. And granted, they're cup champs for a reason, but I, I just couldn't go that route. And please, I'm picking the Rangers to go to the cup final. So what does that tell you? And in Vegas, I just like what they've done here with their team over the last three years since their existence. So I, that's why I see them going to a cup. I know it may be a little bit off kilter with the Ranger pick. But again, in the East, I mean, really, am I going to see Carolina? Am I going to see Columbus, Detroit, the Panthers? The Bruins could probably make some hay. And I like the Bruins last year to go to Cup Final after going to the Cup Final the year before that. But I'm going to pick the Rangers just to be different and with their team. And they're probably a year or two away from even getting to a Cup Final. But why not this year? Why not? That's why I picked Vegas to win six. All right, and lastly, let me get to baseball. The big trade last week, I know everybody was probably wondering, Jay Reels must have been driving off the road because that's where I heard the news when I was on the road on Thursday where Francisco Lindor comes to the Mets for Ahmed Rosario, Andres Jimenez, a young prospect, and two other prospects. And if you didn't see on my social media, whether on Instagram or on Facebook, I did post a video later that evening to give my assessment of the trade and I'll just sum it up this way was it a move they had to make without question you bring in a 27 year old stud who still has plenty of years ahead of him I understand it's a walk year but Steve Cohen I'm sure they probably talked to Lindor and his representative to say we're going to sign you because we're not going to trade you just to have you for one year and then just walk so he's going to be part of this franchise at least for the next six seven years Because I don't think he's going to get that 13-year, $320 million contract. That's not going to happen. And you give up Ahmed Rosario and a young Andres Jimenez, but you got to give up something. But they didn't give up a lot of their other jewels in their farm system that people were talking about. And it's not as if the Met farm system ranks in the top five in baseball. So they pretty much have whatever is left in their cupboard considering what they did when they traded away from Marcus Stroman and them not being as deep as, let's say, the Rays or the Dodgers or some other teams in baseball. But it was a trade they had to make. Not only does it give them the guy that a lot of the city could latch themselves around because we could look at Pete Alonso and say he's that guy, but he's more of a slugger. He's not a superstar player. Jacob DeGrom, we know he's a standout, top flight, Cy Young pitcher, but he only pitches once every five days. So now you have that guy who has the big smile, who has the personality, who has the game to back it up, five-tool player, the whole deal. So if you're a Met fan, you're jumping up and down. But are they World Series contenders? They are not. They still need, and they bringing in Carlos Carrasco was also a big help too. It's going to help out their rotation, which is good to go along with Stroman and even Syndergaard when he's healthy. But they still need, to me, another 
key relief pitcher. Because as we know, pitchers go six innings these days. If they go seven, you're lucky. And you're going to need another reliever. That's how the game is today, unfortunately, number one. And number two, they need a game-wrecking bat in that lineup. And they don't have that. And people say, Jay Reels, what about Pete Alonso? Is he that guy? He's going into his third year. He's a guy that, yeah, you could trust to be in the lineup day in and day out. But he is not that bonafide that when you hear his name, like automatically, like, oh, yeah, he's that guy. He is not Giancarlo Stanton. He is not Cody Bellinger. He is not those type of guys that will just wreck the game and carry you on their back for weeks on end. Now, Alonzo did show that in his rookie season. He did, and that was as unexpected and as glorious as it was in a historic season for him. But he is not that guy that's going to carry you on his back a la 2015 and even 2016 Yoenis Cespedes. That's a guy who wrecks games. And we saw that in those brief fleeting moments when Cespedes was pretty much an MVP candidate during those two years when he put the Mets into the postseason. That's the guy I'm looking for. Because with a lineup of Lindor, McNeil, J.D. Davis, Dom Smith, Alonzo, that's a very good lineup. Conforto, very good. But let me get one game wrecker in there and then you really got a lineup and maybe a team that's going to contend for a World Series. Because I said, as I said the other day, the Padres improved. The Dodgers are the Dodgers. The Braves are still the class of the division as they won three straight division titles. So that puts the Mets at four among many other teams. But they are not in the pantheon of the NL just yet. And they need to make those couple of moves in order for them to be so. So that's where I start with the baseball segment. Two other quickies. Kyle Schwarber, another guy who wrecks games, but is also wildly inconsistent. Signed a one-year deal with the Nats. So let's see what he does down in the nation's capitals. We got to see him for 18 times next year. And then you had this report out of LA where the clubhouse staffer who was there for over four decades, Brian Harkins, who is now pleading his case where, I believe has gone to court now, where he was let go by the Angels because of passing off doctored baseballs to opposing pitchers, whether your name is Garrett Cole or Justin Verlander, to name a couple, to where he's producing text messages to where, and I'm paraphrasing here, where Garrett Cole is asking him, Brian Harkins that is, to help him out with a sticky situation, meaning to provide him with some more rosin and pine tar. And mind you, those two guys have been excellent in their final couple of years. And listen, Cole has blossomed into a number one ace pitcher. And we've seen that over the last few years. Now, is it all based on him doctoring the baseball? Unless they find more evidence and words are words and they could be harmful, we get that. But until we see actual evidence, uh, look at Mike Scott. Remember him, 86 Astros? He was doctoring up the baseball left and right with sandpaper. And that was his Cy Young season. He was unhittable that year. And what he did afterwards wasn't even a comparison to what he did in 86. So unless we see that type of evidence or unless we see players outing him out as the Mets did with Mike Scott that year, we'll never know. Yeah, he may have a text message and he may be guilty in that regard, but unless we see Garrett Cole go 10-13 and 13 next year or Justin Verlander when he's healthy is 6-12, and 12, then maybe we'll see, oh, there could be some more truth to that. But until then, we won't know. But with that being said, even though he got fired and he was there for 40-something years, why would he oblige these guys? 
whether you're an Angel fan or not. Could you imagine? I don't care if Justin Verlander's handing you over $10,000 in a suitcase and say, hey man, give me some more of that rosin or pine tar. Uh, no, sorry. Now we don't know that's the case. That's just speculation. It's alleged. I'm not trying to say that I have any inside information in reference to that, but to me, why would the clubhouse guy, why would he go ahead and try to help the opposing team or even help his own team for that matter by doctoring baseballs? Uh, to me, it's just, I don't know. All right, so now my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week is longtime L.A. Dodger Blue, Tommy Lasorda, who was in intensive care as of two weeks ago, but then made it out of the hospital and was in the hospital, I believe, for almost two months. Made it out of the hospital, was home, but unfortunately he had died, I believe, Friday at the age of 93. We know Tommy Lasorda. It goes back to the days of the Brooklyn Dodgers. That's how far back he goes. Been in the organization for decades upon decades upon decades. Became manager in 1976 after Walter Alston, the longtime manager of the Dodgers at that time, retired. And we know the career that he had. Many World Series appearances. 77, 78, he finally won in 1981. And then, of course, in 88, what he did against the A's, the Kirk Gibson homer, and, of course, the 81 against the Yankees that he finally got some payback after losing back-to-back in the 77, 78 years. An ambassador for baseball that will be sorely missed, 93 years old, Tommy Lasorda, thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to his family, friends, colleagues, etc. And my zero of the week is Tennessee Chattanooga assistant coach Chris Malone from mocking Georgia politician Stacey Abrams by making references not only about her weight, but even call her Fat Albert. Can you imagine? What was this guy thinking? What a low life. I mean, how could you even put that out there? And I don't care how many apologies. He could come on CNN. He could go on all the news networks and cry uh, an ocean of tears and say it was bad judgment. I don't know what I was thinking. Sorry, my G. That is just downright deplorable. And uh, not to get into it, but that in a nutshell is part of the reason why this country is just so divided. And not even just by politics, but just come on. You're going to to spew this hate, this vitriol at someone you don't even know and just uh, attack her in that way? Chris Malone, you're not even my zero of the week. You're my zero of the month, year of a lifetime, my G. So uh, just terrible all the way across. In fact, he could be shipped to Omiyakon, Russia. If you don't know Omiyakon, Russia, I'll spell it for you. O-Y-M-Y-A-K-O-N where it's currently 51 below zero. Ship him there and have him live the rest of his life in that region of the world. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Episode 173 finally wraps up. I appreciate you listening to everything I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports. I appreciate you taking the time out to download and listen to what I have to say because we all know there are a lot of different platforms out there, a lot of different podcasts by more renowned sports figures and personalities We know who they are. So for you to take a chance to listen to what it is I have to say, again, I thank you twice more than once. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox FM, Player FM, Amazon Music, and of course the website at jreels.com. All that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast by you subscribing, rating, and reviewing so the world could see that this podcast does exist. Remember, I'm an independent entity here. 
I host, produce, write, edit this podcast all on my own. So by you doing that little duty, not only increase the visibility, but also generate interest for those who aren't familiar with the podcast so I could bring in that guest, the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, writer, blogger, studio host, so I could have them share their experiences with me so in turn could share that with you on everything that's happening in the world of sports. And if you'd like to reach out to me with a question, comment, criticism, praise, whatever, you could do so on any of my social media accounts, whether it's on Instagram at JReels or the JReels Podcast, on Facebook, the JReels Podcast, on Twitter, JReels1, just a number. And if you want to send me an email the old-fashioned way, the JReels Podcast at gmail.com, send them. I'll be sure to write you back. I'll be sure to follow up as I love to do so with everybody and anyone who does follow me and the podcast. And then lastly, if you want to support the podcast, your goodwill, your contribution in whatever way, shape, or form, you could do so at www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Auntie. Patreon, that is. Just to fund, to keep the website up, to increase not only just the visibility of this podcast via advertising, maybe even some merchandising somewhere down the road. I'll be sure to show you receipts. I'm not trying to do it for any other personal interest. Everything goes into this podcast. Why, you might ask, is because I've been here for 173 episodes and I plan with the good Lord to be here for hopefully 173,000 more to deliver everything that's happening with my heart, with my passion, with my soul, that everything that's in my fabric of my being to share with you my opinions, my analysis on everything that's happening in the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are. The J. Rose Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beast, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. Until next time on the J. Rose Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>